Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. My name is Jared Williams and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. John Piggott. He is an equine surgeon, an associate clinical professor, and the clinical director of the Cornell Ruffian uh, Equine Specialist in New York City. Today, he will be discussing his original article in EVE about radiographic technique to improve the diagnosis of sagittal axial sesamoid fractures in racing thoroughbreds with lateral condylar fractures. John, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. So before we kind of get into the paper, how are things? Uh, Tell us a little bit about your practice, Cornell Ruffian. Yeah, things are going very well. We're, uh, uh, we just started, you know, this summer with a, a new intern group. We usually take three or four interns per year. Um, uh, you know, our practice here is it's about, I would say, 55 to 60 percent uh, racing thoroughbred work. You know, we're conveniently located across the street from Belmont Racetrack. So uh, we've got a natural feeder of cases from across the street. Uh, and then another kind of 40, 45% of cases are, are mostly warm bloods, I would say, from Long Island. You know, hunter, jumper, dressage horses, uh, a few polo ponies, get some standard breads mixed in there that uh, come from a little further away. But uh, yeah, it's a nice mix of a caseload for sure. So the practice is doing very well. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been very happy with how things have been progressing over the years. Good. Yeah, you have plenty of cases in this paper for sure. Um, before I start talking about the article, or I guess before I start asking you about the article, are there any other contributors that you'd like to acknowledge associated with this paper? Uh, no, you know, Dr. Labby and myself uh, did uh, all the work on it. You know, there, um, no, no, that's that's about it. You know, there's maybe one or two of the cases might've been from a different clinician uh, over the years. All the operated ones were from me, um, but no, this is all basically Dr. Labby and myself. Great, all right. So the title of the article uh, gets us right to the point of what the article is about, which is great. Um, So to tease that out just a bit, the specific injuries that you focused on are really extensions of lateral condylar fractures. Can you expand on the the sesamoidian component to this injury? Yeah, for sure. So uh, there is... Uh, a population of horses that will develop uh, typically a displaced lateral condylar fracture that also have a concurrent sagittal axial fracture of the lateral sesamoid. And, you know, the, the occurrence of it is, is, you know, that's part of the reason we set out to do this, this study was, and to describe this, was just to look a little bit more about the, the frequency and, and uh, further describe that condition because it, has some really significant effects on uh, racing prognosis, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But uh, yeah, the you know your your average condylar fracture uh, that you know average lateral condylar fracture non-displaced you know typically carries a, a good to great prognosis with surgical repair. You know displaced lateral condylar fractures without sesamoid involvement again could still carry a a very good. Uh, uh, prognosis for racing, depending on the amount of cartilage damage in the joint. But then you get this population of horses that have the displaced lateral condylar fracture with a concurrent sesamoid fracture. And that's, that's a different can of worms. Uh, those horses, um, 
uh, typically do not race even after surgical repair and, and have a, a much worse prognosis um, uh, with that condition. Are the injuries to the sesamoids, particularly the axial uh, sagittal fractures, are they tough to identify? Yeah, for sure. You know, that's 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 part of the reason why we felt it was important to uh, to publish on this because it, you know, some of these fractures can be very very thin on the axial margin of the sesamoid, and uh, frequently, you know, if you're not careful and really really scrutinizing the radiographs with with an appropriate uh, angle of obliquity, it is very easy to miss them. And the last thing you want to do is, is, you know, tell a trainer or an owner that, you know, their horse is going to have a, a great prognosis with surgical repair and then later find out that actually there's a, a sagittal crack in the sesamoid and that your horse isn't going to race again. Um, so it, it's critically important to, to look for that and identify them. But some of them can be very subtle for sure. Perfect. Well, I think that sets the stage for getting into the paper. I mean, we've identified that this is... Uh, an uncommon but significant variation of a lateral condylar fracture, and they're tough to find. So with that, can you tell me a little bit about how you set up the study? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, obviously this is, it's more of a, a descriptive type study uh, that focuses more on the imaging. And then, and then, you know, I thought it was important to describe, uh, even though it's a low number of cases, just the clinical outcome in a few of them, uh, because the, the clinical progression is a little bit different than typical condylar fractures as far as uh, post-op and how they appear arthroscopically. Um, but yeah, you know, basically we, we combined the cases from Ithaca and Cornell Ruffian, but the, the vast majority of the cases came from Ruffian. There's a few that came from Ithaca. Uh, but, you know, we looked at over a period of, of from 2014 to 2020, it was a, 142 condylar fractures that were identified, of which 124 of those fractures were lateral condylar fractures. So 18 of them were medial condylar fractures. And, uh, you know, again, everyone has a slightly different um, way that they like to describe displacement. You know, typically we were looking at, you know, loss of alignment uh, along the articular margin. Uh, some people look at displacement as, as the width of the separation on the articular margin, but we look for a step defect uh, in loss of congruency in the, in the meta, metacarpal cortex. So we identified um, uh, 30 of the 124 lateral condylar fractures were classified as displaced. Uh, and then of those 30, uh, eight of the displaced uh, condylar fractures also had concurrent sagittal axial fracture of the lateral sesamoid bone. So that was 27%. Then there was one uh, of the group that was an incomplete lateral condylar fracture, did not have a true step defect at the articular margin, but it also had sagittal axial fracture of the lateral sesamoid bone. Great. You know, um, when you suspect uh, condylar fractures in these racehorses coming in, what are the standard radiographic views you'd like to take? And then kind of piggybacking on that, uh, which views do you specifically like to take to assess the, the axial region uh, of the sesamoid and why? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, the, I would say that, that most people, when they're evaluating condylar fracture, you know, most people take a, a series of, of, you know, different, different oblique, uh, different oblique views, varying obliquity, 
you know, to kind of highlight uh, the fracture margin and, and to look for areas of Palmer comminution along the fracture line. But, you know, for us, our, our we take a standard, you know, standard four view projection of, of lateral DP uh, in both of the traditional obliques. And then we usually shoot three different flex DP views looking at the uh, different parts of the palmar plantar aspect of the condyle. Again, looking for pre-existing condylar disease, maybe next to the fracture line or on the opposite condyle, looking for fragmentation on the palmar plantar aspect of the, of the condylar fracture, you know, palmar comminution that uh, may affect prognosis or uh, would be something that, you know, we would have to go looking for to assess arthroscopically. Um, you know, we don't always take a flex lateral view uh, on a, a pre-op, you know, I think that the, the value in that is less compared to the other ones. And, and remember these horses are usually quite sore. So you have to be a little bit quick, uh, with, with your shot selection, but you know, what we were seeing is that, you know, as we were, uh, taking kind of a variety of, of oblique views, we were noticing that, you know, a slight medial oblique just off of DP, not only lined up the lateral condylar fracture, dorsal and palmar cortices nicely, but it's, it also highlighted, uh, the fracture line in these horses that had axial sagittal fracture of the lateral sesamoid. So, you know, that, that was really the, the genesis of the paper and that, in that I think most surgeons, uh, and practitioners at the track for that matter, you know, again, most people take a variety of, of radiographic projections, but for us, now, you know, the, we take standard four views plus, uh, three flex DPs, or at least two flex DPs. And then, uh, a, you know, a 15 to 20 degree medial oblique view flexed and standing to really highlight the axial margin of the lateral sesamoid bone. Great. So for those, uh, listening to the podcast, if you don't have the paper in front of you, this would be a good time to just kind of hit pause and grab the paper. And if you're driving down the road or you're nowhere near being able to get a paper, then we'll do our best to describe what we're seeing in some of these figures. But the next few questions are going to be based on uh, some of the great figures in the paper, which focus on radiographs and uh, arthroscopy. So John, figure one shows two different horses with lateral condylar fractures. And the images that you'll see are, uh, you know, radiograph projection, the 20 degree DMPLO. Uh, can you expand on what you were trying to demonstrate in this figure? Yeah, basically we were, we were just, you know, studying the radiographs and looking for, you know, what were the most consistent findings in horses that, uh, that were shot, you know, to basically highlight the, the axial sesamoid fracture. So, you know, what we found is that, uh, these horses had about 80 to 90% superimposition uh, of the medial sesamoid with the distal cannon bone. So you just have about, you know, 10, maybe 20% of the sesamoid that's sitting proud, you know, from the condylar fossa. Um, and that's in the paper, you can see that there's a little kind of red line that basically highlights the free part that's, that's coming off, uh, from the cannon bone. So the, the biggest key to this is you don't want it too oblique. And, you know, the other, that's obviously very subjective, uh, looking at that and trying to look at superimposition of the sesamoid. So we tried to put a, a second descriptive marker in. So we dropped a, uh, a parallel line running down the, the axial margin of the lateral sesamoid. And, and consistently that line 
ended up going between two points, usually between the mid midline of the cannon bone. So midline of the sagittal ridge. And then it ended up somewhere between the midline of the sagittal ridge and the medial parasagittal groove of the distal cannon bone. Uh, and that was, that was consistent, consistent too. If, if you can get that line to end up, uh, roughly in that area, then usually that highlighted the axial sesamoid fracture the best. And, you know, realistically, no one's going to be dropping, dropping a mock line down on their radiographic projection to see if it's in that area. But mentally you can be, you know, just kind of, uh, have that in the back of your mind, uh, to say, okay, am I in the right ballpark? Cause the biggest mistake is being too obliqued and then you'll, and then you can miss it. And you guys try to not try, but you guys illustrated that point in figure two, right? That was the whole purpose of figure two is just to give uh, the reader an idea of what, what do you mean by too oblique? That's too oblique. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, figure two is, is more of a, a traditional 45 degree, you know, DMPLO and uh, you, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a finely fine position for a radiograph, but, but it really hides the axial margin of that lateral sesamoid. And, and all we're trying to demonstrate in that view is that, you know, yes, when you drop that, uh, that line down, you end up kind of off onto, you know, into the meat of the condyle and into the margin of P1. And, uh, uh, it's too far around, you know what I mean? It, it, you basically end up losing all the definition on the axial side of the lateral sesamoid bone. You performed a CT on two racehorses with this injury. Why'd you do those scans and what did you find? Yeah, for sure. The, those were two horses that were euthanized. They were not operated. Um, and, you know, all I was trying to do was, was to get you know, an idea about the exact angle that these horses were fracturing through. Now, I fully appreciate, as did the reviewers, that, you know, you can't make a, a end of the line conclusion based on, on two horses through a CT. And, and, I, and I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, all the horses we looked at, you know, the approximate angle, even though I didn't CT them all, uh, you, there's certain, uh, markers you can look at radiographically. They were all roughly between about 16 to 23 degrees or 24 degrees. And, and on average, I would say 20 degrees was about right. Uh, realistically, you know, you need to CT, you know, 50 horses or so to, to really look at that statistically. But, you know, all I was trying to do was, was put a rough idea of number to it that was more exact than, you know, trying to use a protractor on the floor with a radiograph with a, a generator in my hand. Um, but I do appreciate that, you know, some of the, these, these fractures can be, uh, the angle can change a little bit, you know, through the proximal sesamoid, uh, proximal aspect of the fracture through the base. And, uh, but on average, 20 degrees for this group of horses was about right. Figures four, five, six, and seven, for those of you looking around or looking at the paper as we talk and those who go back and look at it, uh, they do a great job of showing the value of that 20 degree oblique, whether it's flexed or not. Um, do you mind just expanding on any of those figures for those listening in the paper with, for those of you that are listening that have the paper in front of them? 
Because I can tell you when, when you look at them, you see why it matters. You, you can't deny it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, figure four is the one that, you know, should probably freak you out the most because it, you know, when you, when you look at that DP view uh, in figure 4A, you basically can't see, uh, you know, the, the axial uh, fracture on the lateral sesamoid bone. You know, at the very, you know, proximal axial part of the lateral sesamoid, you might question, you know, if there's a little fragment or, or the start of something there. But for the most part, the displaced lateral condylar fracture is completely superimposed on the axial margin of the lateral sesamoid bone. And again, it, when you look at that radiograph, it's actually just a hair lateral oblique. And, and many people wouldn't scrutinize their radiographs that much, but it, it's a degree or two lateral oblique. And that by, and that also just, just further superimposes that lateral condylar fracture with the axial margin of the lateral sesamoid. So, uh, figure four is the one that, that really drives it home. Uh, because that the the people that we had that that missed this fracture on uh, radiographs uh, either at the track or or uh, before it was sent over to us, uh, it's an easy mistake, very easy mistake, and and you know without knowing to look for it, um, uh, you know it's it's not a, a difficult thing to miss. So yeah, Figure Four basically shows the. Uh, how clear that that axial sagittal fracture is on the lateral sesamoid bone with a 20 degree medial oblique view. And, you know, going down to figure five is, you know, it basically shows how thin and faint some of these fractures can be. You know, the, uh, the one in figure five, uh, again, most of these fractures are crescent shaped uh, along the axial margin of the lateral sesamoid. You know, they can be incomplete, they can be complete, they can be displaced, they can be non-displaced, but the one in figure five is very, very thin. And, you know, again, you get some idea if you're studying the, the straight DP view, but, you know, by providing slight medial obliquity, it just pulls that fracture margin. Uh, it lines up the, the two edges of the fracture margin so you can see it more clearly on the x-ray. Now, uh, Figure six and seven, you know, start to bring into play the idea of this flex, uh, flex twenty degree medial oblique, and you know sometimes we do that on axis. You know that, that's realistically how this probably happened to stars is is we shot a flex DP and it just wasn't straight, and we and then just by chance, you know, when it was slightly medial oblique, we were seeing that it was lining up the, both fracture margins and was highlighting that sesamoid really well. So I think we ended up backing our way into it a little bit, but, uh, you know, the flex view, uh, it does highlight, uh, some mild displacement that you can get in the sagittal axial sesamoid fracture. Um, and you know, in, in a few horses, we, we picked up on, you know, what appeared to be just subtle areas of comminution radiographically that, you know, we can talk about that later, but you know, again, the, the comminution aspect of it, when you go in and scope these guys arthroscopically, they are almost always crumbly, multi-fragmented uh, uh, little fractures that, that the, that the x-rays, you know, frankly, underestimate uh, quite a bit. You know, you're always, when you go in there arthroscopically, you're always like, Ugh. you know, it's, it's quite a bit of a crumbly mess along the axial margin.
So, uh, uh, yeah, that that basically shows you know what we're looking at on those guys uh, between both the the standing and the flex twenty degree medial oblique. Awesome. Well, progressing the case along a little bit, uh, four of the nine horses that had this injury ended up having an arthroscopy of their fetlock. Why did you do this? Yeah. So basically, you know, horses that have axial sesamoid fracture of the lateral sesamoid, you know, in combination with a condylar fracture, you know, the, the prognosis for return to racing is quite poor. You will get some horses that may defy the odds, you know, throughout the population over the years that, that go back to racing. But in general, these horses don't race again. And if you're looking at repairing these horses surgically, then usually it's because the horse has some degree of breeding value. Uh, or they like the horse and they just want to retire it uh, and have it, you know, be as comfortable as it can be in out to pasture turnout. Um, but usually it's one of those two reasons: either they're trying to save it as a breeding animal, or they're just trying to save its life and and want it to be turned out. Um, uh, so, you know, the the four horses that we operated in this group, you know, they were all displaced lateral condylar fractures. So. Um, uh, every horse that has a displaced lateral condylar fracture, you know, the gold standard for repair, besides putting screws and lag fashion in there, is is to arthroscopically a evaluate the joint, but b guide uh, reduction of the lateral condyl, the displaced lateral condylar fracture, to reestablish normal joint congruency and, and anatomical reduction. So, so. Arthroscopic assessment, you know, absolutely in these cases, it gives us the added benefit of, of assessing the overall degree of cartilage damage in the joint. Uh, it allows you to, you know, assess the axial margin of the lateral sesamoid. And if there's any kinds of bits of crumbly bone or comminution there, with their, which there usually is, you can debride that. And uh, I think that helps out, you know, with the prognosis uh, longer term to get some of those loose fragments out of there. Um, and then, and then, you know, use your scope to help guide the, the repair of the displaced condylar fracture, just kind of using standard technique. Figures eight through 10 are all arthroscopic images of the injury. And, you know, a little bit answering my own question is, is when you look at these arthroscopic images, you get a really good idea of why you're doing it and the degree of injury that can be associated with what you see radiographically. Um, Will you expand on those figures and tell us a little bit about what we're looking at and what you found arthroscopically? Yeah, absolutely. So these are all uh, arthroscopic images from the four uh, horses that we operated. Uh, arthroscopic images from the from the proximal recess of the palmar pouch of the fetlock joint. Um, and basically, you know, figure eight is you know highlighting the the fragmentation. Uh, along the axial margin of the sesamoid adjacent to the intersesamoidian ligament. Again, these fractures are, are considered, you know, a type of avulsion fracture uh, off the lateral sesamoid because it's right where, you know, it's usually uh, spanning the margin where the intersesamoidian ligament attaches on uh, the axial margin of the lateral sesamoid. And, and you know, you, you think that there is just you know, increased abaxial forces on the sesamoid, and then you have the tug of the intersesamoidian ligament 
that causes these horses to fracture. Again, typically a higher energy fracture, they're usually displaced. Um, uh, and then a portion of these horses ends up with the axial margin fracture on the lateral sesamoid bone. So figure eight is, is, is highlighting uh, uh, A, the, fr the fragmentation on the lateral sesamoid, but it also is showing you know, the degree of cartilage damage that you can get uh, on that lateral sesamoid bone. And that can range from you know, mild to moderate to quite severe, uh, uh, depending, on, depending on the case. And you know, if you have a horse that, that has significant full thickness cartilage damage on the lateral sesamoid, you know, that's going to significantly, uh, without, the, without the, the axial sesamoid fracture, that's going to really hurt your chances of them coming back as a good racehorse. Now, that combined with the axial sesamoid fracture, again, I think that plays into uh, how these horses can be a bit uncomfortable after surgery, but also contributes to the progression of degenerative joint disease that you get in these horses or can get in these horses uh, longer term as they're going through rehab and after everything's healed up uh, as you're following these horses out radiographically. Um, Figure nine is just showing, uh, again, bits of the same thing, uh, slightly more focal fragmentation on this horse, uh, you know, right in the middle aspect of that fracture. Uh, again, with, with fairly prominent adjacent full thickness cartilage damage on the lateral sesamoid bone. Um, and uh, figure 10, again, is figure 10 is a bit more of a comminuted uh, fracture that that again, you know, you can see some of this on the uh, preoperative radiographs, but for the most part, the preoperative radiographs underestimate the degree of fragmentation that's truly present there. And I, I think that's just because of the size. A lot of it is these smaller, superficial osteochondral fragments um, uh, that just aren't as radio radiographically visible. Uh, uh, compared to what you see when, when you're going there with the scope. Uh, you might you know, do a slightly better job with CT uh, to pick up on some of the fine bits of fragmentation, but most of these horses aren't getting a CT before surgery. They're just getting x-rays and then make a decision on where to go from there. Quick question about prevalence. Um, if you, you know, in your introduction, you guys do a really nice job of outlining what's in the literature. And there's two papers that you reference from the mid eighties, early to mid eighties and early to mid nineties that collectively basically demonstrate that there is a historical prevalence of about oh, 10% on horses that present with a displaced lateral condylar fracture and the sagittal axial sesmoidian fracture. When you look at the results that you guys had with 30 out of 124 of the lateral condylar fractures being displaced and then teasing those 30 out with basically eight out of the 30 with a displaced lateral condylar fracture actually having the same sagittal axial fracture, that gives you a prevalence of about 27%. Is there much to read into that, the difference, uh, or is it just a number of cases and a circumstance? Do you have any thoughts on the difference? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of things about this condition. You know, one is, you know, all the papers that are out there that, that described it originally are, like you said, are, are fairly old. Most of them are in the eighties. Uh, there are a couple papers after that that may comment on, you know, uh, a case with a, 
uh, a sagittal axial fracture with lateral sesamoid or, or some kind of sesamoid involvement. But for the most part, these papers are, are, are fairly old uh, that looked at them. And, you know, ours, no different than theirs, you know, have, have relatively uh, low numbers of cases when you look at them. There's no very large case series out there. Um, but again, you know, historic prevalence of this condition has been relatively low when you look at, you know, the overall population of, of condylar fractures and, and then specifically displaced condylar fractures that you deal with. Um, yeah, I, I was, you know, that's part of the reason why we ended up uh, uh, moving forward also with this paper is that, you know, we were seeing what I thought was uh, a much higher percent of, of sesamoid involvement with our population of displaced condylar fractures. And, um, you know, I don't know the exact reason for that. Uh, I don't know that if, it, if we're just getting better about, you know, scrutinizing the radiographs and finding them, um, uh, or, you know, does it have something to do with uh, the way these horses are fracturing or track surfaces or, or whatever it may be? You know, certainly there, there are times of the year where you know, well, you know, you have these runs of condylar fractures that happen for whatever reason. Uh, and then of those, you know, a, a proportion of those horses will have displaced condylar fractures. Um, uh, but I, I don't have a great explanation as far as why we saw a higher prevalence um, than before, except that, you know, it's a relatively uh, uh, low number of case uh, of axial sesamoid cases, but again, it's, it's a fair number of condylar fractures overall that we looked at. Um, and I think the, the take-home message with that is, is it's, it's, it's going to be prevalent enough with displaced condylar fractures that you really need to be looking for them. And the, the consequence of being wrong and missing that fracture and, and worse would be repairing it and still not recognizing it, uh, is 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 really a bad thing um uh so that's what we're trying to to uh hopefully avoid you know just by kind of promoting uh a little bit more education uh, and awareness about this type of fracture um you know most people that, that work with racehorses know it can happen and um uh but we just have to remind ourselves to to really scrutinize these radiographs before surgery to try and pick up on uh, as much information as we can that, that may affect longer term prognosis. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that that's where you went with it um, for two reasons. One, I was about to ask you, what are your takeaway points? And I think that kind of hit the major takeaway point. And the other one is regarding prevalence. You wonder, uh, is it that your prevalence is different than it was, you know, 25 to 35 years ago, or are you you just scrutinizing the radiographs and picking up on it. So maybe the prevalence has always been the same, but you're just better at identifying it or just not missing it. And when you look at figure four, you're right. It could, it should haunt you on how it can be missed if you're not looking for it. Right. And that's why I think the work that you guys have done and um, uh, what you can read in EVE is really valuable. Uh, before we kind of adjourn any other uh, important takeaway points that you'd want your listeners or readers to be left with. Um, we didn't really, I mean, I think we got into a little bit that this is a bad deal. We didn't get into the specifics of how the few cases did in your 
study, the ones that recovered what they went on to do, but is there any big prognosis type points or anything else you'd like to leave them with? Yeah, I think the, you know, again, the, the clinical description uh, of the cases and how they progressed in this paper is, is, you know, it's more informational, I think, than, than anything else. Again, it's not enough cases that you can really draw any kind of like fast and hard conclusions from. But, you know, clinically, I had a couple observations with these horses that I, that I thought would be useful for, for folks that haven't uh, dealt with this type of fracture a lot. You know, one is, uh, you know, after surgery, these horses can frequently walk a little bit sore um, after placing, you know, cortical screws in lag fashion to reduce the fracture. And, you know, when I was first doing, going through it and, uh, you know, you'll see in the paper, some of the earlier horses, I, uh, you know, I was, I was unhappy with their, their level of, of comfort, not in the sense that compared to your average condylar fracture, where those horses really should be walking sound immediately after surgery. And I just started to notice, you know, on turns, they were a little bit short and, um, you know, one horse I put in a bandage cast and I kept it in a bandage cast for 60 days or so. And, you know, that was a mistake. Um, you know, the, the one thing you don't want to do with these horses is, is really immobilize a highly traumatized fetlock joint because all that happens is it just stiffens up on you. And then you end up chasing your tail once they come out of the cast to try and, and regain a little bit of range of motion in the fetlock joint, but, uh, which is really difficult to do. So, uh, you know, the worry is if you, if you try to immobilize them in a cast, yeah, they may walk a little bit better in the cast, but you're going to, uh, bite yourself in the butt when you take them out of the cast and then you have a joint that's traumatized, there's cartilage damage, and it gets so stiff, uh, that those horses can be sore still. Uh, even once the fracture's kind of been more stabilized. So that's one thing. I, I, I wouldn't use a cast on them. Uh, I would just try and manage it, but recognize and that they may walk a little bit sore um, after surgery. And that's just because you have a, you know, some pull on the intercessmoidian ligament still with weight bearing, and, and that's going to pull probably on the axial side of that fracture. Um, you know, combined with there probably being a, a varying degree of cartilage damage in the joint, which can contribute to some degree of discomfort. Um, you know, as, as far as, uh, you know, the type of repair, you know, half the horses, we put just a single screw in the condylar fossa distally and a, you know, a number of screws that one or, uh, above that, you know, now I I'm doing, you know, really just screw usually on a displaced fracture. I'm doing two screws in the condylar fossa and just one above it, no matter the length of it. Um, and, you know, oddly enough, the, the uh, or maybe not oddly enough, but the two horses that had two screws in the condylar fossa and one above it, both those horses did very well um, and longer term. I have no idea if that was pure chance. Um, both of them still had moderate cartilage damage in the joint. So I don't think it was, uh, except the one horse that ended up being euthanized 30 days post-op, He that horse had progression of cartilage damage on the sesamoid. And I think that did contribute to the progressive discomfort in that horse. But, you know, some people out there uh, elect to do fetlock arthrodesis on these horses. And that's because of this risk of ongoing discomfort, risk of pro uh, progression of degenerative joint disease. Um, and, you know, the biggest concern, which is long-term comfort, you know, can we keep these horses comfortable as a breeding animal or in the field uh, or whatever they need to do afterwards. Um, 
so you would need you would need a much larger series to look at repair technique. You know, is is putting two screws in the condylar fossa superior uh, than just one screw? I don't know, uh, except that I usually put two screws in the condylar fossa um, now. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that you, know, you just have to kind of nurse them through post-op. And as long as everyone's on the same page about you know, what the goal is, what the prognosis is uh, moving forward, then and recognize that, you know, there are some of these horses that despite repair, you know, they may develop enough degenerative joint disease where they could need a fetlock arthrodesis later on down the road. But I usually don't go there to start. I try if they want to save the horse and repair the fracture, uh, debride as much of the loose cartilage and fragmentation as you can to try and improve the overall health of the joint and then uh, try and manage them. But, you know, I, and I think that, you know, for a number of these horses, you can get them comfortable longer term uh, uh, in a field or as a breeding animal. Um, but I also recognize that there's a proportion of those horses that will have progression of degenerative joint disease and will need additional work. Um, but there's a lot of different opinions if you talk to different surgeons about how they approach these cases. Um, but I tend to be less aggressive in the sense that, you know, just repair the fracture with a standard technique. And then if you need to do more later on down the road, that's fine. But probably the only other comment is that, you know, there's been, there's some select fracture configurations where you may be able to directly repair, you know, with a screw through the sesamoid, the, the axial sagittal fracture. But that's, that's a very select uh, fracture orientation because again, most of them are so crumbly that you're not going to get great purchase with a screw through there. Uh, I would say in the majority of cases that present with it. So usually you're just debriding the fracture line on the sesamoid and not repairing it further than that. And then repairing the condylar fracture using standard technique. But, um, you know, there is opportunity for a larger case series here, potentially looking at, you know, CT or MRI is to try and get more information. Um, uh, that may help to uh, identify, you know, further prognostic variables with these horses uh, that can help to optimize long-term comfort. But, you know, as we talked before, the, the main takeaway is looking for the fractures, you know, uh, taking, you know, about a 20 degree medial oblique flexed and standing to try and optimize your chances of finding that fracture and then appropriately describing the prognosis uh, to all involved so that everyone's on the same page about realistic chances of that horse racing again and realistic chances of that horse being comfortable long-term period. Uh, that's why, you know, only four got operated. The other, the other of the group were euthanized because, you know, they, they didn't have any breeding potential and, and uh, some of the owners were concerned about long-term comfort and they elected for euthanasia, which, which does happen for a number of those horses. Great, great explanation. Super insightful. Um, you know, thanks a lot for your work. Fantastic work. I think this is a great contribution. This is something that uh, is very helpful. It'll change if, if people aren't looking for this, they will now. Um, so yeah, I really, really appreciate what you've done and what you do. And I appreciate your time today. Uh, it was a great explanation. I thought super, super helpful. Great. Thank you so much for having me and, and we'll talk to you soon. So for those listening in that don't have the paper in front of them, 
this is an early view that can be found online. Uh, the DOI is 10.1111 slash EVE.13446. And again, uh, to all the listeners and to John, um, thank you for contributing. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.